Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Walking away from Wall Street to go work in journalism makes zero sense financially. Really what you're doing all day long is speaking to people and trying to determine who has good, useful information and then acting on that information. It's just that the action is different. The production of good journalism, by definition, is expensive, it's messy, it's time-consuming. And I think maybe journalism is best when it's practiced under private ownership. I'll have the occasional pang of having, you know, left a lot of money on the table, but I think I found the place I was supposed to be. All right, folks, today we have a very special episode that both Reagan and I are very excited about. Nigel Jaquis, who if you are listening to the podcast, you definitely know who Nigel is. You definitely read his articles. You're probably like familiar with him as a powerful journalist who you know takes down politicians. We talk a little bit about that in this episode. I'm going to read a bit about the bio and then Reagan and I will just do a quick little intro and then we'll get right into it. Nigel's a reporter at Willamette Week. That's where he spent his entire career as a journalist when he moved to Portland. He's won a bunch of awards, three National Education Writers Association First Place Awards, Society of Professional Journalism Awards, et cetera, et cetera. But he also won a Pulitzer Prize, which is like the top of the ladder when it comes to journalism awards. So before he joined Willamette Week, he was a crude oil trader on Wall Street and worked for like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. So we talk about that in the beginning and why he made the transition and what he actually did before, which was pretty interesting and how there's some parallels with his work as a journalist. So this was an awesome episode, especially like we talk about it, but like if you're my age or Reagan's age, we weren't around for the Neil Goldschmidt story. Like we were not, we were too little. We weren't really able to understand the ramifications, but we spend a lot of time talking about that and helping people understand. Like my personal opinion is there is no figure like Neil Goldschmidt in Oregon today, what he was before the scandal, there is no one in the state who has that level of power and influence. He was a former U.S. cabinet secretary under, in the Carter administration, successful mayor, one-term governor who many thought could have easily won re-election. Like he's this powerful guy and there's an evil, evil story behind what he did. And we talk about that in the podcast, but a lot of the podcast is spent on that, but we also spent some time talking about journalism and power and where Nigel and Willamette Week fall in the sort of journalism environment in the state. But Reagan, I'm curious, what was your takeaway? I think that the number one takeaway from this episode, aside from all the like, you know, mind-blowing details about the Goldschmidt story, is that Nigel is a not a traditionally trained journalist. He didn't yeah. go to school for journalism right out of college and then go into journalism. And because he, he has a non-standard way that he came to journalism. He isn't what I would consider classically trained journalist, although he did go to journalism school. And he went to a non-standard news outlet. And he talked a little bit about that. And I think both of those are the only reason the Neil Goldschmidt story got reported the way it was. Because mm -hmm. you kind of see more details about that. And it'll make more sense when you listen. I really don't want to spoil more than that. But I think the fact that he wasn't traditional and Willamette Week isn't traditional really made a huge difference. and change the entire trajectory of the state. And I think that more of that kind of not following the pattern in the sense that not doing things the way everybody else did them is how things change. And it, it can be a big catalyst to change in any kind of facet, but particularly in politics. Yeah, it's clear from this interview that Willamette Week and Nigel personally took tremendous risk 
to publish this story again like we'll we'll talk about the context in the episode but I think that was like he won the Pulitzer Prize after that like we didn't have a, a very much time to sort of like talk about this but I think that is the moment where Nigel becomes the Nigel that you and I Reagan think of like a, like a big powerful mm-hmm. figure in journalism but I don't think he was that or Willamette Week necessarily was that prior like maybe they were there was like beginning parts yeah. of it but that was like a, a big moment. And I think Nigel used the phrase, they bet the company, like the owners of Willamette Week bet the company on this story. And it was not, it was definitely not clear that it was going to happen the way that it happened at the time. So yeah, we got through like less than half the questions that we wanted to ask because we were so enthralled by the Goldschmidt story. So hopefully we can have Nigel back. I was nervous at the beginning and like stumbled over my words at the first question, like, welcome to the, the, the podcast. But it was a really, I think, I think folks will really enjoy this interview. Like it was very interesting to me. I've read the Pulitzer Prize winning story and the follow-up stories like twice. And there was stuff that either I didn't remember or wasn't covered in the story. So we will link to those stories in the show notes. I highly recommend, like if you work in Oregon politics, you should know this story. I think it matters deeply in the DNA of this state. So we will link to the story in the show notes. Reagan, any closing thoughts before we jump into the interview? No, except for that this is probably the best podcast episode we've ever done. And so we'll have to probably consider shutting the thing down after this. <laughs> I don't know that we will because we need stuff to do. But if we ended the podcast right here, we would go out on top. Absolutely. Nigel's one of the best. Nothing to, against our other guests, of course, who have all been amazing. But and Nigel delivers something really special here that's hard to hard to replicate. All right. With that, we are going to jump into the interview. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you back here next week. All right. Nigel Jaquis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Okay. So we're going to talk about politics, and we're going to talk about journalism. But like one very interesting part of your biography is you have not always been a journalist. Before you were a journalist, it says you were a crude oil trader. And you kind of made this mid-career dramatic switch. I read somewhere that losing your parents was part of your motivation. But can you explain to listeners, I guess, first, why you made the transition? And then I'm also kind of curious, what was the job before you were a journalist? Like, what does a crude oil trader actually do? Sure. Maybe I, if I reverse that, it'll make more sense. So trading okay. crude oil involves gathering a lot of information about what oil prices are likely to do around the world. It's a global market, very international. So I worked mostly in New York, but also for four years in Singapore as part of teams that were internationally buying and selling large cargoes, the ones that you see you know, out at sea that may hold a million or two million barrels of crude oil, and trying to figure out where prices were likely to go up and where they were likely to go down. So we're, in essence, playing high-stakes poker with the company's money betting large amounts of money on the relative movement of oil prices around the world and using futures in New York and London to offset our risk and trading options to offset some risk. So it's a very volatile, huge dollar market that uh, really geopolitical, really involves a lot of interesting people and places. And in fact, was great training for being a journalist because really what you're doing all day long is speaking to people and trying to determine who has good, useful information and then acting on that information. It's just that the action is different. So mm. when I was in my early 30s, I started doing that right out of college. I did it for 11 years. But in my early 30s, I had this sort of series of life events, which made me really reflect on what I was doing. My parents both died in their 
fifties and my wife and I had our first child mm. and all those events really made me look at my life and say, okay, life is short. That's the takeaway from my parents' early deaths. And also now I'm more, you know, I'm becoming an adult. I've got a, a wife and a child and I need to make sure that I'm a happy person that I'm doing what I want to do and that I'm finding fulfillment in the way that I spend my day. And I, I trade crude oil is an amazingly exciting, can be extremely lucrative profession, but it wasn't ultimately all that I wanted to do. And uh, mm -hmm. so I talked to my wife about it. I said, gee, you know, I, I'd like to try something else. I've always loved writing. I really like the idea of just stepping away from trading and trying to write. And she said, great, go for it. So I, mm -hmm. I had a two-part plan. Part one, I had a book I wanted to write, tried to write it, wasn't any good, couldn't sell it. But I, mm -hmm. I learned in trading that you always have to have a backup plan because nothing ever goes the way you think it might go. My backup plan was I applied to journalism school at the same time. I had a good friend from college who'd gone to journalism school and said that it really was fabulous for her writing. So I, I went to journalism school in New York, and I really fell in love with public records and sort of long-form journalism that you can build around public records. So I thought, okay, I'll give this a try. It's kind of a crazy decision because you know, walking away from Wall Street to go work in <laughs> journalism makes zero sense financially. But I, I came, I also wanted to leave. My wife and I decided we wanted to live in Portland. And Willamette Week had an opening and I thought, well, I'll give this a try. If it doesn't work, I can always go back to trading because I was in my mid thirties. I had marketable skills and, you know, 25 years later, I'm still here. So one quick follow-up on that, you know, Ryan, do you, you know, Ryan Frank, I'm assuming. Yes. So I, I wrote for the Emerald and like he always used to talk about to college journalists that the role of journalism was comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I was yep. like, in your story, you sort of like switch roles, like oil companies are definitely considered comfortable journalists job yep. is to sort of like, what, do you think did that impact how you like, did you see yourself as like part of the powerful elite and then shift to the other side? Or is that not really part of how you conceived of it? Well, you know, I worked for Goldman Sachs for almost seven years. I worked for other Wall Street investment banks. So I was certainly part of, and I you know, I went to a couple of Ivy League schools. So you would have to say that I was closer to the elite than to the uh, afflicted and <laughs> or, uh, closer to the comfortable than, than the afflicted. And when I thought about working for Willamette Week, you know, it's an alternative weekly, which means it's an alternative to the daily and it's counterculture. And I, you know, I've always had short hair. I have no tattoos. I am a middle of the road, white bread. I'm about as far from alternative as you can get. And, you know, I showed up for my first interview at Willamette Week with a coat and tie on. And I think people are like, well, who, who the hell is this guy? Uh, I, I wasn't really, I, I didn't really understand Oregon casual at that point. So yeah, I mean, it was a real reversal. It was a very different position from the position I had been in and I was working with very different people. And, um, you know, I, I've never, I've had so much fun. I've never regretted. I sometimes talk to old friends on Wall Street and I'll have the occasional pang of having, you know, left a lot of money on the table, but I, I really found, I think I found the place I was supposed to be. You never would have won a Pulitzer Prize working as a crude oil trader. That I'm certain of. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Reagan. So you kind of already talked about a little bit about your transition into working for Willamette Week. And I think we'll kind of come back to your kind of early years. But I wanted to talk about what you think about the role of political journalism 
in the landscape of politics, particularly in Oregon and how Willamette Week's coverage maybe compares to an Oregonian or an OPB and what you think of the journalism in Oregon and the landscape that it's in now. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Different observations on that front. So part of what attracted me to Willamette Week and the reason that I've stayed is that the paper long before I arrived carved out a very specific niche. And I think that niche is accountability journalism, investigative journalism, enterprise journalism, call it what you will. It's trying to explain to people how and why things happen and to hold institutions and individuals who have power accountable. And people, I think, particularly outside of Portland, will look at us as a perhaps a left-leaning paper, and in some ways we may be. But I think if you were to look at the history of the paper, we've probably held more Democrats accountable and caused more Democrats heartburn than we have Republicans, simply because of who holds power in this state. So I think that the niche that the editor, Mark Zussman, established you know, when he arrived in the 80s, there was already a sort of a leaning that way. But it was like, OK, the Oregonian is one of the institutions in this state. And at that time, you could say the same thing about the Statesman Journal and the Eugene Register Guard, perhaps the Ben Bulletin. Those are all institutions in their own communities. They're large. They employed lots and lots of people in those days. And you could count on the publisher being friends with the head of the Chamber of Commerce or with the CEOs in the community, the movers and shakers. And so Willamette Week said, okay, there's an opportunity to not be friends with any of those people, but to try and, you know, examine them critically and see where they're not fulfilling their roles or their obligations or their duties and to hold them accountable. So that niche was available then. It's still available today, even though those daily institutions and OPB, you know, they're still they're still around. They're diminished. OPB is stronger than it's ever been. The, the dailies are diminished because of the whole you know decline of advertising and print journalism, and that you know it's a different story. But when I came to the paper, I was pretty disengaged from politics. I wasn't really, Mark Sussman interviewed me. So why are you here? He said, are you a crusader for justice? I said, no, man, come on. I came from Wall Street. He said, are you, are, you know, are you a political junkie? And I said, I don't think I voted until I was 30. Oh my gosh. And uh, he, he said, uh, so why, why are you here? I said, I really want to write. And I want to tell interesting stories. Well, right away, I, almost right away, I would say, I came to understand how central the decision makers at every political level are from the smallest, most obscure elected or appointed body to the legislature and the governor. And I became really fascinated by that. But sort of just the the amount of power invested or vested in in those public bodies and the importance of the electorate knowing as much as they can know about those bodies really became compelling to me. So as somebody who was a news junkie, yet apolitical, I became extremely interested in in the workings of Oregon politics. And um, one of the stories that I reported on fairly early was the Goldschmidt story. Mm-hmm. And part of what was great for me about that was it really allowed me to look back pretty far at that time, to look back 30 years and to spend a lot of time in Goldschmidt's archives, which meant looking at his calendar, which meant looking at his correspondence, and really understanding how every second of every day for Certainly for the governor, but for every politician, there's somebody, some group, many times, many but many somebodies and many groups who want that person's time because they recognize how important the decision making and the the power that those those people hold are. So it really kind of wedded me to politics. And wow, sometimes I'll write about business and sometimes I'll write about individuals. 
I'm always kind of, you know, drawn back to how decisions get made and and who really wields power. We're actually going to talk about the Goldschmidt story in a second, but a quick nuts and bolts question I'm curious about. I imagine when you started at Willamette Week, it was probably a more traditional relationship with your editor and you're the journalist, like you're getting stories assigned or maybe you're pitching stories and getting approval. I'm guessing now in your career, it's probably a little different than that. Do you basically get to report on what you want or how do, what does the relationship look like within the newsroom? Yeah. When I first came to the paper, I really, although I'd gone to a very good journalism school, I, I knew nothing about journalism. And of course, I knew nobody in Oregon. So yeah, a lot of my stories were assigned. In those days, I my first beat was covering K-12 education, which was a great way to start because, you know, people are really invested in their kids' schools and there was a lot going on with standardized testing and unhappiness about that. And, and there were just lots of documents available. So I really learned a lot about how to report by covering public schools. Over time, I kind of drifted into different areas. I've covered the legislature, I've covered city hall, but I've always sort of had the leeway after pretty early on, the leeway to basically just pursue whatever I'm interested in at the time. And a lot of that does come from conversations with editors and colleagues about, gee, what is the, we have the luxury of not being the paper of record, which means that we can cover what we want to instead of having to cover everything. We don't have mm-hmm. the staff to cover everything, but we also have, you know, our kind of our, our goal is to try and cover what people are really interested in or ought to be really interested in. So I've, I've ranged pretty far and wide, and I've had another reason I've stayed at the paper is the editor and the publisher have always been really supportive of me doing whatever I want and backing me on stories that were really controversial or really took on powerful or popular institutions or people. And they've always been 100% behind me, and they've never, ever said to me, why don't you back off or why don't you do less? They've always said, do more. There have been many times when stories that I've written or that I've helped work on have, you know, cost the paper advertisers and they've never, I've only ever heard about that after the fact and nobody's ever come to me and said, hey, you know, that story costs us a lot of money. It'll be something that somebody might have said indirectly. So Hmm. that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about corporate ownership of media. And unfortunately, I think that it is true that when you have people who are in in the business to make money, like the Gannett chain, for instance, or the Alden, the hedge fund Alden that owns a bunch of papers around the country, they're always looking at the bottom line. And they're always trying to figure out how to reduce costs because revenue keeps shriveling. You know, the two guys who own Willamette Week, I'm happy to say, are terrible business people in the sense (laughs) that they've always had, they've always had journalism as their top priority and they're hoping they can make enough money to keep the lights on and keep us employed but they have always worked from the premise that the story is more important than the revenue and uh that's an incredible luxury i mean when i talk to colleagues at other news organizations you know they i think that's the thing that they they really wish they had is bosses who are only focused on the journalism Mm. the gannett approach is like short-term high profit and then who cares if the institution dies like it doesn't seem like they actually care about the mission yeah you know i i think without without wandering off track here one of the benefits of the american capitalist system is the broad public ownership of corporations and and that can be a really good thing for investors and for the corporations for discipline for for profitability for efficiency 
I'm not sure it's great in, in the journalism field because the production of good journalism, by definition, is expensive, it's messy, it's time consuming. It doesn't really yield itself to the kind of, you know, high volume uh, standardization. Yeah. Exactly. So it's uh, I think maybe journalism is best when it's practiced under private ownership, like a, a Bloomberg or, or another model or mm. where people aren't being challenged to come up with higher profits every quarter. So we'll talk now about the Neil Goldschmidt story and the framing I want to use for this like section of the conversation is I think most people working in Oregon politics who are under the age of, I don't know, 30 or 35 are not super familiar with who he sure. was, why he mattered, and the lasting impact of the story. So I think that the place to start is can you describe who Neil Goldschmidt was as a figure? Because I from I wasn't around at the time, but it seems to me there yeah. actually hasn't really been a figure like him in Oregon since he was this national figure, high profile, very popular. Yeah. Like who was Neil Goldschmidt before the scandal? Sure. Goldschmidt grew up in Eugene, went to the University of Oregon, then went on to UC for law school, came back to Portland and worked as a legal aid lawyer. And he soon got involved in politics, ran for city council in his 20s, won a seat, and then was elected mayor before he was 30, was the youngest big city mayor in America. This was in the mid-70s. And he then was named Jimmy Carter's transportation secretary in 1979. So before he was 40, he had been, you know, mayor for six or seven years. He had been a cabinet secretary. And so he was a figure who really helped shift Portland and Oregon from an axis that had probably best been described as moderate republicanism. He helped shift the city council. And probably the thing that he is most known for in his city government days, a couple of things. I mean, he, he did things like change Tom McCall parks from a freeway into a long green park along the Willamette River downtown, helped convert what was a parking lot in the middle of downtown to Pioneer Courthouse Square, talked Nordstrom's into staying, establishing the big store downtown, which really revitalized downtown. But the thing that I think will be one of his lasting legacies is there was a freeway, interstate highway plan from Portland to Mount Hood, and ODOT had acquired a lot of the right-of-way, and people were very upset about it. So he was among he was a leader among a group of people who said, hey, no more freeways through national forests. Let's use the money more intelligently. And so they were able to convince the feds to let them use the money to build Portland's first light rail line instead. And that really changed nationally. It was part of a change in the way people thought about transportation. You know, instead of instead of just building a freeway wherever you could, People started to think about alternative means of transportation. So he did become this kind of leading figure. He had kind of the best and the brightest in Oregon around him at that time. So after after Carter loses to Reagan in 80, Goldschmidt comes back to Oregon, goes to work for Nike, ends up being executive director for Nike in Canada, makes some money, then comes back to politics, runs for governor and is elected governor in, in 1986. During the period he was governor, a lot of things were going on. The Oregon engaged in a prison building boom. The conversion of Washington County from 
amazing farmland to Oregon's technical center of high tech was going on. He was very engaged in that. And nationally, he was a, a guy who was definitely on people's radar. David Broder, who was for a long time the Washington Post's leading political columnist, identified him and Bill Clinton as potential presidential material. No Broder kidding. wrote a column saying there are three governors in this country who could be president. The third was the governor of New Jersey. I think it was Keene, Jim Keene at the time. But uh, so Goldschmidt was clearly going places. And then he shocked the state when he announced he would not run for a, a second term as governor. Everybody thought it was an inevitability. And uh, he didn't really, he was going through a divorce at the time, never really just sort of cited family issues and people accepted that answer. So 1990 came around. He was, people were really excited about a matchup between him and Dave Fronmeyer, who was a moderate Republican, was attorney general, was a Rhodes Scholar, very highly respected all over Oregon. And people were looking for this titanic battle between Goldschmidt, who was the golden boy of the Democrats, and and, uh, Fronmeyer, who was the leading Republican at a time when Republicans had a, a much stronger base of support in the state than they do now. So Goldschmidt didn't run. A third-party candidate, Al Mobley, got in and allowed Barbara Roberts, Barbara Roberts to, to defeat Frohnmeyer. So Goldschmidt kind of goes into exile, but he goes into exile in a really interesting way. He becomes sort of the fixer, the power broker behind the scenes. Any Democrat who wants to run for office comes to him to get his blessing and ideally an endorsement. The greatest example of that, frankly, if you fast forward four years, was that Barbara Roberts had a pretty tough term first term, but she was looking to run for re-election. And uh, Kitzhaber, John Kitzhaber, who had been Senate president, decided he wanted to challenge her. And that's very unusual, as you guys know, for mm-hmm. a sitting governor to have a challenge from a, a highly credible figure like Kitzhaber. Well, the person that Kitzhaber went to for permission and for a blessing was Goldschmidt. And Goldschmidt gave him permission and blessing, and Roberts wow. didn't end up standing for Re-election, but it, it went far beyond that. I mean, Goldschmidt had a consulting business, which basically consisted of him and, and a former chief of staff, Tom Imason, and they worked for Paul Allen. You know, they were the ones who got light rail built to the airport. They they represented the Bechtel Corporation in that light rail deal. They had sort of the creme de la creme of Northwest business interests as their as their clients. People like Bechtel, people like Paul Allen. And so behind the scenes, Goldschmidt was making a lot of money. He had pushed for a change in Oregon's lending laws when he was governor, which did go through and and allowed a high interest rate credit card company to open here. It was opened by a guy named Irving Levin. Levin, after Goldschmidt left office, pulled Goldschmidt onto his board and his high interest rate credit card company was bought by a company called Household Finance out of Chicago. And it made Goldschmidt several million dollars because of the ownership he had in that credit card company. So he quietly became a wealthy man in this period. And so he was the man to see if you wanted to get something difficult done. And, you know, he helped uh, protégés like Ted Kulongoski, who had uh, he had basically rescued from sort of political oblivion, come back and become governor. You know, the people who were running the electric utilities and the gas company were all his protégés. Mayor Vera Katz was a protégé, the the longtime Portland mayor. So he was really, although not in elected office, by far the most influential private citizen in the state. And, you know, when Kitzhaber ran for governor and needed money, uh, Goldschmidt helped him get 
250 grand from Phil Knight, which was then the largest political contribution in state history. So it's hard now to remember for many people, or many people never heard of Neil Goldschmidt, just what a towering figure he was. So, but mostly behind the scenes. So I'm trying to make a long story short. What, what happened that kind of brought him back to prominence was that Enron, the natural gas trading company from Houston, had purchased Portland General Electric, the state's largest utility. Then Enron went bankrupt through a you know massive fraud. So oh, yeah, the, yeah. the fate of the, the state's largest utility hung in the balance in bankruptcy court. There were a lot of people who were interested in buying it because the electrical utility world was deregulating. There was a lot of excitement among investors. So a private equity group called the Texas Pacific Group decided they wanted to buy it. But they were smart enough to know that the utility world is intensely regulated and intensely political. So who could they get that would allow these, you know, basically these leverage buyout guys who are looking to really come in and, and make a lot of money? Who could they get to make this thing respectable and get it through the state regulatory apparatus? Well, they, they hired Goldschmidt. Okay. And so my assignment was to tell go go out and this was this was 2003 go out and figure out what goldschmidt's been doing that he doesn't want people to know about since he left office and so and at, at this time you had not heard there's you hadn't heard any rumors of the no. the okay you're no, just so, investigating you know, a powerful guy yeah just you know he, i knew he had i'd heard a couple of things about a couple of real estate deals he was involved in in fact he helped uh the related companies, I believe, massive mall owners, I think maybe then owned 205. They that that when their uh, TriMet was putting a TriMet was putting a uh, new light rail line in that went to Mall 205 in East Multnomah County. He was involved in that, and there were a couple other things he was involved in. Nothing particularly, you know, nefarious, but big deals that people hadn't known about. So I was in the process of gathering information about those, and I, he had been very prominently involved in representing the SAFE Corporation, the state's workers' comp insurer. He had been getting paid a huge amount of money to represent them. That became a public matter before the legislature, and one of the people who was questioning his role was Vicki Walker, who was then a state senator from Eugene. And she, I called her because she had been one of the few few Democrats willing to question Goldschmidt. He was sort of untouchable. She was questioning why he was getting this large consulting. How could a state agency be hiring a lobbyist for 20 grand a month or whatever it was at the time? A lot of money. Good question. And what was he doing for that money? And um, so one of the things I learned as a journalist is that people who have the courage or Willingness to ask hard questions often become lightning rods for other people who may have information, but either don't have the courage or the ability to ask those questions. So I called her and I said, hey, I know about the safe thing. I've done some reporting on it. Is there anything you've heard that in addition to that? And she said, well, I, I got this tip about him and I have a couple of pages of documents, but I don't know what it really means. And so I said, well, these are the days we use. We still use fax machines. I said, well, could you fax me whatever you got? And so she faxed me three or four pages, and it it was from a Washington County court case, a personal injury case. Didn't mention the victim's name, and it didn't mention Goldschmidt's name, but it said, you know, an, an injury had occurred to a person, and somebody had compensated that person. So I'm like, okay, I'll just go get the rest of the file. In those days, you actually had to go to the courthouse to get the file. So I went out to Washington County and got the file. And there were lawyers' names and there was a victim's name, but there was no 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 link to Goldschmidt. But that was like the tip that had accompanied the document to Senator 
Walker was that uh, this involved Neil Goldschmidt in some way. So, so I, I remember going into my editor's office, Mark Sussman's office, and and I said, I, "There's probably no way this could be true. There's no, you know, Goldschmidt has been covered more than anybody else in Oregon for the past thirty years. If he did something bad, people would have written about it." And he's like, I, I just drop everything else and run this to the ground, see what you can find. And uh, so that's all I did for the next three months. So, wow. So there's a lot to this story. We'll link to, I think there's like, there's the the main article, but there's like a couple follow-up articles that you wrote at the time yeah. too. But the basic punchline here, right, is that Neil Goldschmidt, when he was mayor, this was yeah. happening? When he was mayor, yes. was having sex with raping a 14 year old girl i believe um yeah, correct and you're reporting eventually like you actually you spoke to this woman right like you actually met the woman yeah. who has since passed yeah. away yeah. so i the one like piece of this that um we've got about 15 minutes left um and there's a couple other questions but the one piece of it that i'm really interested in is you've got your story there's i, I don't know the details of this but the oregonian people have heard this rumor, like by the time that yeah. you're getting ready to publish, like it's like kind of out there, but it's not like Goldschmidt goes to, he goes to the Oregonian to try to like yes. tell the, a softer version. Like what, what was the actual like publication? So, date that so I wrote him, you know, in those days we hardly used the internet and I wrote him a letter. I called him, I went to his office. He wouldn't talk to me. So I wrote him a one page letter saying, here's what I've found. I have questions about this. I need to hear your side of the story. We're, you know, we're pretty far along the road and, uh, you know, we need to talk as soon as possible. And we did that, you know, to give him a chance in case we were wrong. We were wrong. We were totally screwed. And, you know, he's a he's a former governor, former mayor. We great deal of respect for the guy. And so he he just he ignored that letter. And um, so we're going to OK, we're going to publish. We've got enough. We're sure even though the victim denied anything happened. Even though he wouldn't talk to us, we had enough. Wow. We that's when I say these guys bet the paper on the story. I mean, we were going to go to. We had a story prepared with with the victim denying anything happened and with the subject unwilling to comment. So we said, okay, we're ready to go. And uh, he, so he, he was the head. He was the chairman of the state board of higher education, which still existed then. Kulangowski had brought him back to do that to fix the state's university system. He was the chairman of this buyout group that was buying. Portland General Electric. We start hearing like on a Monday, he's resigning from everything, citing health health concerns. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we knew that that was, that was not, not true. true. And then he his lawyer said, come on down and talk to us. And the victim's lawyer was there also. And they're like, don't put anything in the fact that uh, the two of us are in the room at the same time. We want we understand you're working on a story. It's not true. Meanwhile, he was having a PR guy, uh, Brian Gard, in Portland, who does a lot of damage control. They went to the Oregonian and, and tried to sell a version of the story that almost made Goldschmidt the big. And, uh, the, Org <laughs> the Oregonian wrote a headline that referred to it as an affair, which, you know, having sex with a 14-year-old when you're in your 30s is rape. And, and uh, so the Oregonian, but we heard they were going to the Oregonian. So we basically threw the story up or part of the story up online. So first time, you know, that we'd ever broken a major story online. And uh, so you had these two competing narratives. And um, 
I was pretty depressed because, you know, I'd been working nonstop for three months on this and I could feel it slipping away from me. And, and uh, so we got our story out there. And then that weekend, the Oregonian ran a story. They ran a couple of things. They ran an op-ed saying we never should have done the story from a columnist. The, wait, wait, wait. The op-ed, we never should have. The op-ed, the op-ed said the op-ed Oregonian said, shouldn't do it? No, no, that Willamette Week never should have engaged in this reporting and it, it was not, <laughs> you know, worth reporting. And they ran a second op-ed from a guy who had been Goldschmidt's uh, fixer, a guy, a private wow. investigator named Bob Birchall. And they didn't know that Birchall had been involved in the early formation of Willamette Week, and that was his credibility for writing this op-ed. He never mentioned in the story that he was the private detective who was Goldschmidt's fixer getting the victim out of trouble. So they handed us all these <laughs> gifts. And then what we were later able to report was that the Oregonian had had everything that we had three yeah. months earlier, and they just yeah. sat on it. They didn't. Oh they never gosh. did anything. Wow. So, so the Goldschmidt's attempt to go around us and give the Oregonian this scoop really blew up in their faces, in part because they had sat on this story for months. I mean, they had way more than I had, and they had it months, months, and months earlier. I was still discovering things that they had known six months later. So. So I know it's really, it's going to be really hard to ask a follow-up question here. And this is, this is totally off book, Ben. I apologize, but this is the greatest podcast we've ever done. So these stories hit and I was pretty young at the time, but I recall the Republican slash Dem held legislature immediately begins. And and it might've been mostly Republicans, but there was like a removal of his portrait from the Capitol. There was all kinds of stuff that came after this that was basically like that obviously Goldschmidt now becomes an extremely controversial figure and becomes a lightning rod in the political realm. Were there any kind of general ramifications that happened or was it kind of isolated just to him? Well, you know, I mean, so all of a sudden you had all these people, again, the heads of the utilities, you had Governor Kulingoski, who was a total protege of his, Mayor Veer Katz, who was still mayor, protege of his, Mike Shrunk, the district attorney, all these people were Goldschmidt's people that, you know, the, the Supreme Court justices, they were all Goldschmidt's people, the CEOs of local companies. So many of them had benefited, their careers had benefited from his help. He had helped make them. So their their position in life, their income, their self, sort of their identity was all tied to this guy who went from being, a you know, the golden boy, the guy who did things nobody else could do to a pariah overnight. And so I think there was this long period of people trying to figure out, you know, who they were and how they fit. And there, there were a bunch of associated scandals. I mean, it came out that his bodyguard had been sleeping with his wife and, and, you know, that, that a lot of people had known about this and covered it up for their own benefit. And so it, it just kind of, it it really, it was like a tidal wave. It just, or an earthquake would be better. There kept being these aftershocks of, well, this person knew, and now this person is discredited. And, um, you know, the, the things that happened for Goldschmidt, you know, he got, he got dis- he resigned because he was going to get disbarred. He got thrown out of the Mac Club. He his portraits were taken down in the governor in the Capitol and in the city Portland City Hall. He was not prosecuted because of statute of limitations, but basically he moved to you know he moved to France. He owned a winery down in the Willamette Valley with another guy, and the other guy bought him out, and Goldschmidt moved to France. And uh, 
So it, it took a long time. Huh. One of the interesting things about it, Reagan, which you didn't ask me, but I'll tell you anyways, a sure. lot of people were very, very angry at us for publishing this story. Very angry because mm. of because they associated <laughs> because Goldschmidt basically helped Portland go from being, you know, kind of Spokane mm. to a city that was on a national map. If you look at a lot of things that that came to define Portland you know, planning and transportation and restaurants and kind of a, a vibrant downtown when a lot of cities still hadn't figured out how to revitalize their downtown. A lot of people attributed the rise in prominence and in popularity of Portland to the policies that Goldschmidt and his crew set in place in the early 70s. And and I think that's absolutely the case that so many of the people who followed him basically just continued the things that he started. So it really caused a lot of people to, you know, you're 50 or 60 years old, and all of a sudden, everything you believed your whole career and everything you built your career around turns out to be built on a foundation of absolute evil. How do you come to terms with that? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, a lot of people decided the way they come to terms with it was to tell me and my colleagues and my bosses that we were and that we never should have done this, and this was inappropriate, and nobody needed to know this, and, you know, how dare you, and... um that's a, you know, we got so much pushback and there are still people who are angry at us for that. So wow. it's it's really hard to, uh, it's hard to describe how much impact that story had. So we've got about seven minutes left and I want to, I think the Goldschmidt story, so you win the Pulitzer Prize for it. It's a national <laughs> story. Virtually everyone in the state is familiar at some level with what happened. Yep. And I'm guessing that was probably the start of like the perception that political actors have of you as this powerful figure. Like you talked about power early and you're interested in like studying power. And then this story gets published and then there's probably half a dozen. They're not quite this because of the, you know, there is no other Neil Goldschmidt and the level of evil that you uncovered is not going to be matched again. But there's the Kitzhaber story. The most recent one is the Jennifer Williamson story. And I'm kind of curious, so I have like an undeveloped theory that I wanted to hear your thoughts on. So Goldschmidt story happens, national story on the TV, everyone's talking about it, everyone's writing about it, it shakes Oregon politics. Kitzhaber's story, I think most people had a sense something was happening, something was going on, there was a, there was some sort of scandal that could probably point to the first lady's involvement, but not a tremendous degree of clarity about like what the actual thing was. But Kitzhaber resigns. He's done. His political career ends. And then Jennifer Williamson, I use as the most recent case study because I don't think the general public, she was a, she was not a figure, she was not a governor, but the general public was not probably super familiar with what you wrote about in that story. But all the political insiders, the lobbyists, the staffers, the elected officials, yep. they were all reading it and hyper aware. And so I'm kind of not sure if those are just like situations that with unique environments surrounding them, or if that's a trend over time that like sort of follows journalism, if you who you conceive of as your audience has evolved at all. I'm kind of just kind of curious how you reflect on that arc of those stories mm-hmm. and how you've approached your job over the, I don't know, couple decades it's been. Well, as I said at the outset, I think we Willamette Week, long before I arrived, defined a role for itself or chose, identified a role to, in that accountability journalism. You know, I, we could go over dozens of stories, dozens of names since I've been involved. And But I want to emphasize it's not just me. It's 
it's the institutional mentality of the Willamette Week that people who hold power should be held accountable. And there are, you know, there will, there have been, there will be again, people who forget why they hold office or forget why they have the power that they do. And they say one thing and do another, or they do things that they shouldn't do. And, you know, there are no secrets in the world, really. And so people who are observing who, you know, close access or inside information will often come to us and say, hey, you know, this person isn't who they say they are, or this person isn't conducting themselves the way the office is supposed to be conducted. And you guys should take a look. And, you know, a lot of times the tip's not true or the tip is unprovable, but many times it is true and many times it is provable. And so our, I think our strength as paper is that we have the willingness to do the work to try and fill in the blanks between what people say they were going to do or what an organization was supposed to do and what it is doing. And, you know, it's difficult. It can be difficult work because it may often involve with Kitzhaber or Williamson or Jefferson Smith or, you know, Sam Adams, you name it. I mean, people that yeah, we have supported, that we've, that we've endorsed and that we have good relationships with. And then you have to say, look, um, you know, we've discovered some things and you need to answer for them. And, then we tell our readers what we found. And sometimes they, a lot of times they care. Sometimes they may not care. But we think that's our role is to show people how things really operate, how they happen, why they happen. And when people are falling short of what voters and Oregonians should expect from them to, to write about it. So, you know, I, I think that's an important role that the press well beyond Willamette Week should play is, you know, we have the time and the opportunity to ask these questions and to look for records and documents and substantiation of things that aren't aren't working because I think our expectation should be that you know organizations function society functions people do good things when that happens that's not news when it's not happening then that's news and that's our opportunity well Nigel we are at time we would love to have another conversation to talk some more but as a closing question if folks want to read your work or if they got a story they want to pitch to you where should we send them yeah, uh, wweek.com is a terrible archive, but you can find most of the things I've written or just Google my name and, and, and a person's name and call, you know, e email me, njquis at wweek.com, J-A-Q-U-I-S-F-S at wweek.com. Um, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks, Nigel. Thanks so much.